Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8-Side Network. Nice to have Tony Kubek join me here on Sports Byline, the former New York Yankees shortstop who played his entire nine-year career with the Yankees and was a member of of six American League pennant-winning teams and three World Series championship teams. But he also now, as a broadcaster, is the winner of the Ford Frick Award, which recognizes a broadcaster who is then enshrined with the other immortal voices of the sport into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And by the way, I might mention he's the first to be named exclusively as an analyst. Congratulations on that, Tony. I know you played a lot. You won championships as a ball player, But what does this honor mean to you? I don't know if it's really, uh, Ron... Uh set in yet uh you know i i had a friend of mine from texas call me that that i've seen at a fantasy camp his name is barney rapp and he just got well you know what happened to galveston and he just got demolished there and he was kind of sad when he called me said i heard about it i'm so happy for you and here's a guy that lost his home lost his business they don't know if they're going to be able to move back there and i said well you know barney with what you're going through uh you know i appreciate your call and he said tony this is big and you know when he said that, I started thinking, well, yeah, it's big, and it, it, it's important, and it's a nice honor. But then I try and put it in context. I'm thinking, this is big for a lot more people than me, because uh, in a television production, obviously, you know this, Ron, there, there are so many people involved. The guys up front, they kind of get the glory. But when you talk about the directors and the producers and the cameramen and the production crew and stuff, just hundreds of people many more sometimes that go into putting on a World Series or a Game of the Week and stuff like that. So it's an honor that I think uh, the accolades should be shared with all of those who put on these telecasts for all those years. And I had good bosses, which is kind of a, a neat thing also. And I, I think if you don't have good bosses who are supportive and uh, you blat things out that maybe aren't the kindest things or maybe even erroneous and your bosses stick behind you and somebody in the sport maybe wants to intimidate you and say, look, you say what we think you ought to say instead of, you know, what you think is right. So I had a good boss at NBC and a fellow named Chet Simmons. Uh, I had a good boss when I worked 13 years up in Toronto, Canada, a guy named John Hudson. And then I went to Madison Square Garden to do Yankee games uh, for the last five years that I broadcast. I had a guy named Bob Witkowski, and they were all just they're really good friends. But more than that, they were good bosses who understood that being on the air for three, four, sometimes five hours, and if you have a rain delay in a baseball game, uh, you might slip, you might say something that came out wrong, or, or maybe you just say something that people think is too candid, even though it might be an honest evaluation of something. And I, they were always very supportive. So I'm, I, there are a lot of people to thank, especially my family, because they, they, they were really good while I was on the road traveling a lot. So it's a good honor, and I'm, I'm very happy to be among you know, the greats like Vince Scully and uh, you know, the Ernie Harwells and the Kurt Gowdies, whom, with whom I worked so long, Gary Giola, with whom I worked for eight years, and it just goes on and on. And there are always guys who should be there that uh, are going to be there someday that uh, maybe deserved it 
as much or more than I did. The radio guys who you don't hear much about, to me, are the backbone of uh, the backbone really of, of uh, baseball broadcasting. Really, are the radio guys who do it every single day or at the ballpark, hour upon hour upon hour, and uh, it's a tribute to them too. Tony, you certainly did broadcast during what I think is a wonderful time for the broadcasting of uh, baseball. And I want to get to some of your broadcasting partners in a second. But uh, mm-hmm. I know that baseball players, uh, some of them with the personality and maybe even the educational background, will gravitate toward broadcasting or even be thinking about it during the course of their career. But what about you? Was that something that you said, hey, wait a minute, when this game is over with, I think I'd like to be a broadcaster? Because broadcasting was different uh, at that particular time. No, absolutely not, uh, to answer your question. Uh, in fact, I, I was kidded a lot because the Yankees had a policy where you had to do an interview once a year on television, and usually it was Red Barber. He was one of the broadcasters. Mel Allen was there sometimes. He, he was more on radio. And I just wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't say shy. I didn't feel comfortable. And uh, finally they said, you've got to go on once a year. And it was interesting because my second base partner, Bobby Richards, was the guy who always did that interview with me. Frankie Crescetti, the, the late grader, should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, with all of, he's got more world championship rings than anybody, including Yogi. Played with Ruth and, you know, was the thread with DiMaggio and Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and on and on and on. But he wouldn't do an interview at all. They couldn't force him to do anything. In fact, he said, I'll pay anybody, but I'm not doing an interview. So when my, when my baseball career came to an end as a player because I had an injury when I was recalled into the service. Uh, in the last year or so I played, I, I, I had difficulty and I maybe should have quit before that. So I was out when I was 29. And uh, it, it's a cliche almost, Ron, but, but it's like being in the right place. I think there is something to that. Being a, a New York uh, athlete, you know, the publicity center of the world, or, or it was at that time anyway, uh, you know, with NBC there and they had the baseball contract. I think about guys like Pat Summerall and Frank Gifford and Kyle Roach, who were athletes on successful teams in New York, the Giants, and I was on a successful team of the Yankees. And so they're going to take a shot at you. They're going to take a chance. And the baseball package is looking for an analyst. And uh, Mr. Chet Simmons, my boss, throughout those uh, 24 years I was there, said, look, why don't you try it for six weeks? If you like it and we like you, we'll, we'll sign you to an extended contract. Well, I, I was there 24 years, and I was fortunate for that. But I really wasn't the kind of personality that, that people thought – would become a broadcast. I still don't feel comfortable in front of big crowds. I don't do no speaking whatsoever in front of groups. I don't feel comfortable. But when we're talking about television camera and a game I love and a game that I think I knew a little bit about that I could pass on to the fans some of the reported insights, I felt comfortable doing that. And uh, but so it was unusual that I got involved in this business. My wife said, "You're going to do what?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm going to try it. I guess." And it, it lasted. Oh, nearly 30 years, and I'm very grateful for that. Bob Costas, one of your broadcasting partners, once said about you, there was a kind of stubborn authenticity to him. He viewed the game in a certain way. Anything that didn't feel authentically baseball to him, he recoiled from it. Can you explain that a little bit further, Tony? Well, I, I think maybe a term that, that, that I don't know if I would wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, I'm a purist. My father was a professional baseball player. I uh, was a big union guy and uh, maybe said some things that upset some owners, and they did go to my boss and say, he can't say that, you know. But my dad had a, uh, could have gone to play Major League Baseball. He had a, a contract back in the early 30s. He played in AAA baseball with the old Milwaukee Brewers. There was a AAA Milwaukee Brewer club, and he hit 350 one year. He had a contract to go to the St. Louis Brown Spring training. He had to turn it down because uh, he was raising my mother's brothers and sisters and three of his own children, and uh, he could get more working in a tannery at the time. 
So, so basically, uh, I think maybe that label purist, which I wear with a badge of honor, I guess, and a lot of people now see what's going on in the game and is, is, is pretty much money-driven now. And I have no objection to either management or the players making as much money as they can when their only goal is not for the good of the game and a respect for the game, uh, and, and, and they will do it for the sake of money and go wherever and whenever – I don't like it. I don't like uh, uh, all the expansions they've done. I think it diluted the quality of play a little bit, uh, diluted pitching especially. I don't know if there should be that many tiers of playoffs, but that's money-driven too, and it diminishes in my mind uh, what the 162-game schedule means. So basically, if, if, if that's what Bob was speaking about, I respect his terminology there uh, a great deal because I respect him as a broadcaster and a dear friend. But I, I think it's a purist attitude, and uh, I just uh, didn't like some of the things. Now, there are great ball players around, great owners around. I mean, there will be in every era. There are slackers in every era, too. But I think that, in my mind anyway, after I watched baseball the last few years I broadcast, I just saw too many things happening on the field and off the field that didn't set right with me. And if Bob says they didn't look authentic to me, uh, and that may be a better choice of words than I could ever think of using. So I decided it was time to get out, even though I still had two years left on the contract with the Madison Square Garden Network. But it was time to go home. I wanted to spend more time with my wife and now my five grandkids right here in town in Appleton. Uh, I wanted to get involved in a lot of other things. It's almost like a third life for me now because I, I just haven't watched a baseball game since I retired on television or in person, except some of my grandkids' little league games and some of their soccer games and cross-country meets and little basketball games and so forth and, you know, some of the other stuff that we're doing with our lives. I've already mentioned the fact that you were on six American League pennant-winning teams and three World Series champions, but you called in the broadcast booth 11 World Series, 14 American League Championship Series, and 10 All-Star Games. The perspective of playing the game, being down on the field and seeing it from that level, and then being up in the broadcast booth, what was the dichotomy? What were the differences? Well, I think in some ways broadcasting is more difficult than playing. Playing, you do get a respite. You can sit on the bench in baseball and watch the action that's going on and let your mind drift a little bit. If you try that in a broadcast booth, I, I know there are commercials when you can do that, but many times you're talking about production, camera shots, uh, and so forth in a commercial and different angles and what replay might come up and preparing for the next, you know, not exactly what's going to happen in the field, but what you might try and do that might be a little different. In broadcasting, your mind can't waver very much, and, and I found that fascinating, you know, and uh, I have two daughters. My wife's a social worker, was, and I've got a daughter who's a social worker. Another one, they, they say, Grandpa uh, uh, or, my, or Dad, uh, you have adult onset ADD. You just can't sit still very long. And I don't mean that as a, in a pejorative way because that's a very serious thing. They kind of kid me about it. I like to keep moving. I can't sit in front of a television screen very long anymore and, and watch things. But, but to get back to your question, sometimes broadcasting, the pressures are different. You know, you've got a time frame. In baseball, there are various pressures, you know, Times at bat and a certain thing, ground ball in a critical time of the game, uh, at bat in a critical time of the game, and it's a different kind of pressure. Uh, but you do have a little more respite sometimes uh, when you're playing, but you don't have a whole lot of when you're broadcasting. I mean, it, it, you, you have to be pretty intense and uh, try and be as perceptive as you can to pass things along to the fans. I enjoyed doing them, doing them both because they were both doing something that I loved, and that was baseball. Tony Kubek has joined us on Sports Byline, the winner of the Ford Frick Award, which recognizes a broadcaster who is then enshrined with the immortal voices of the game in the Baseball Hall of Fame. We continue across the country and around the world with you on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. 
This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Tony Kubek has joined us here on Sports Byline. We're talking about his playing career as well as his broadcasting career. Do you remember the moment, Tony, where you got comfortable as a broadcaster? Well, I, I think it really was. It was. I won't say it's instantaneous, and I don't know if you ever really get comfortable. I think uh, if you do, uh, you know, using your word comfortable, I think uh, uh, you can start going backwards. I, I remember Frankie Crosetti, I mentioned his name before, and this is in regard to baseball as a player. And he said, kid, you got to learn. And he's told all his young infielders, Bobby Richardson and I, and before that I'm sure he told Scooter Rizzuto the same thing and Jerry Coleman and Gil McDougall and all the other middle infielders. He'd say, try and learn something new every day because something different happens in the game every day that you thought you saw everything, but you don't. He said, don't ever get comfortable, his words, because if you get comfortable, you've already started backwards. So. I don't, you know, I remember the first telecast I did with Jim Simpson, who trained a lot of, uh, lot of sportscasters, analysts, uh, or jocks, so to speak, in football, basketball, and in baseball, and I worked with him, and I, I just know he was so patient with me, and the very first game we did, we were doing the backup game, which would be going to two cities, or if the primary game got rained out, we would go network. Well, we were having a meeting the day before, and it was in Pittsburgh, and, uh, we were going to go out to dinner after we saw the Friday night game. We were going out to dinner after that and then do the game Saturday. And we got a call saying that the rain is just terrible. It's, it's, the primary game is going to get rained out for sure. And then Jim Simpson came into the meeting, and he, and he had laryngitis. He couldn't talk. And I'll never forget the director was a kid named Teddy Nathanson. And he said, Tony, he said, I don't know what you're going to do, but if they get rained out and Simpson can't talk tomorrow, you're going to have to do this game all by yourself. <laughs> and I gulped and I said, huh? I'd never done a telecast before. I didn't know. I was trying to learn, and that's why I was there doing the backup game. Well, as it turned out, uh, the, the, the primary game did not get rained out. Jim Simpson uh, kind of got through the game, even though his voice was hoarse, and he just kind of carried me along. And I always felt that, you know, not to use, to use the term the second banana, and I think that's probably what I was most of the time, because it was a, to me the play-by-play guy was always the most important guy. Every year of my career, I had to remind myself, hey, he's there to tell the people what's happening, in a, you know, the count, the score, the inning, who's batting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If there's some time you can fill in, you come in if you think you've got something that is worthwhile saying or that you might be able to pass along to the fan. So to get comfortable with it, I'm not sure that I ever was. I worked with three different guys. Uh, started with uh, you know, Simpson and then with, the, uh, with Kurt Gowdy for eight years and Joe Gargiola for about eight and then Costas for about eight. And then I did 12 years up in Canada, 13 years with two other guys up there. And then with Madison Square Garden, I did five years with Dwayne Stats. And I always felt that to be comfortable with your partner 
and comfortable with each other was as important uh, and, and have a kind of rapport. I guess the, the term used is chemistry, you know, can be overrated, but I think that's an important thing that people can sense. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't disagree, and uh, I think that's an important part of a telecast because if you both say the same thing, one of you shouldn't be there. So uh, I don't know if I ever got comfortable. I just thought that I love to work at it, and I don't think there's any game that I've ever seen, uh, and, and I haven't done anything but baseball, that, that really lends itself to ga- gathering information. I mean, you can go into the clubhouse early and always see coaches there five, six hours before a game and talk to them. You can hang around the batting cage. Uh, you can get in the uh, a clubhouse with these guys, and you can socialize sometimes with them and stuff. And uh, to just to just work at that, I, I always felt that that the secret of a good analyst there's nothing scientific about it. It's just hanging around. I, I would kid people and say, you know, there's an art to this hanging around. Put your elbow on the batting cage and kind of get in the conversation. Uh, and you know, you might get something that is not in the newspaper in the, on the stat sheet that you can pass to the fans. And to me, the only thing left that's instant instant television is televised sports, and a lot, it's been written a lot, and there are a lot of talk shows and everything else, but what you can get that day that is fresh before the telecast and pass it on to the fan that hasn't been in the papers, it's something that I always tried to search for, that maybe there's a little tidbit there. Maybe it's newsy, maybe it's a folksy story, whatever else, and try and pass that along. The commonality that I see with your NBC broadcasting partners, Jim Simpson, Kurt Gowdy, Joe Garagiola, and Bob Costas, is that, first of all, they're consummate professionals. Second of all, much like yourself, I believe, Tony, that they were baseball purists, that they love the game for what it is. Am I correct in that observation? Uh, no question about it. I don't think any of the, the bosses that I had would have chosen anybody that, that wasn't that way. That, you know, that doesn't mean that they weren't different. They weren't looking for something maybe revolutionary in the game or something that was a little different. I mean, Bob Costas is a great example of that. I mean, Bob is a combination not just a play-by-play guy, but he's, he, his mind is so sharp. He understands the game. He grew up in the New York area, and then he moved to St. Louis and did a lot of things there and is a Cardinal fan, as Gargiola was, you know, playing with the Cardinals and, and then broadcast for the Yankees uh, uh, before he got the NBC job. But, you know, the, uh, uh, I don't think you can stand still in the game. Things change. Terminology changes. I mean, you hang around the batting cage and you hear different, different terminology about what a fastball is and what a curveball is and what something else is, and it's stuff that the players use. And in a way, I think you're right. Uh, if purist is the right term, maybe to a different degree. You know, to be a purist sounds like there's no change either way, maybe the, the strict uh, sense of the word. But I think a purist can really – go out on the limb on certain things and maybe accept changes that he thinks or she thinks is good for the game. I just thought that some of the changes weren't good for the game, and so I tried to stay as that purist. But that isn't saying that that the guys that I worked with weren't. I think, and the name that you haven't mentioned yet, but I think I did, when I worked the last five years with Madison Square Garden, I worked with a guy named Dwayne Statz, who is just a remarkable, he probably, of all the broadcasters I worked with, was more in tune with the details and the strict play-by-play of the game, which is still, to me, the main focus of any broadcast. I mean, you just can't go and, and forget what the count is, and you can't forget what the score is, and you can't forget who's hitting or who's warming up in the bullpen. And Dwayne Stapps was just amazing. I, I mean, you just couldn't catch him in a mistake. And if I made one, he'd write me a little note, <laughs> and I would be able to correct myself you know, before that. And uh, he's now down in Florida doing games there, and, uh, and uh, he's just a marvelous broadcaster. He's young. He started out in Houston, and then he went to the Chicago Cubs. In fact, he may have been the, the youngest radio play-by-play guy ever. Uh, started at a very young age, and he's moved up, and 
Uh, he does basketball and does some other sports too, but his primary love is baseball. So he learned the right way from a lot of good broadcasters, and he's another guy that I really admired. We gotta... I admire any guy who's, whose last name's a palindrome. <laughs> What's the next stat? We've got a couple of uh, minutes left before we have to break once again, but Joe sure. Dragiola is one of the great storytellers, and I always love going down to spring training and just sitting with Joe and listening to him as he talks to other ball players. just talks about a game that has been a lifelong love for him. Well, he had a flair for that, you know, and, and, and he, he has an abiding love for the game, uh, which is obvious. He did a lot of the Yogi Berra stories and so forth and, and did it in a way that was not detrimental to Yogi's character or, or would, wouldn't be belittling Yogi because they were such dear friends. Uh, to travel with Joe was a delight uh, because if you went and had a meeting, the meetings were a lot of fun. I'm not a big meeting guy, you know. I mean, you got to have meetings. I know that. And uh, if Joe was there. You know, you would have those light moments, which would lighten up the meeting, and then you go on the air. And he did his homework, I think, which was important too. And he did a lot of did a lot of important games. I mean, let's face it, World Series, and, and he's in the hall. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm grateful to, that he was one of those guys uh, that I think voted for me, and I'm sure he did. And uh, that, it was just a pleasure and an honor to work with him too. And uh, I still get a note from him on occasions. We don't see each other as much as we probably would, but that's just the nature of uh, the sports business, I guess. In about 90 seconds, your favorite memories about Kurt Gowdy? Well, the the growler was uh, off and on the field. People don't realize that Kurt was an intellect. I mean, he was the one who said to me, kid, you know, you can't just read the sports pages. You've got to read books. I travel on a plane with Kurt, and he always had a book. Uh, He was always gathering information. Because he had that kind of oaky twang or Wyoming twang and stuff and spent time in Oklahoma, people say, this guy, you know, is kind of got that hick. Who did more than he did? I mean, he did Rose Bowls. He did Super Bowls. He did NCAA Basketball Champions. He did World Series All-Star Games. He did the American Sportsman. And you go on and on and on, and you look at his, you know, the profile of his career, and you say, wow, that's amazing. He would do a Saturday baseball game in the fall of the year, jump on a private jet and fly coast to coast to do the Oakland Raiders game and, and do it like you say, how did he do that? You know, uh, he prepared well. He was trained well in the radio broadcast. He worked with, uh, you know, up in Boston. I mean, he, he's a hero. I was sorry to see him go. I, you know, I, I had a chance to, uh, just two winters ago to go up to his funeral, and, and Senator Alan Simpson from Wyoming gave the eulogy and talked about Kurt because Kurt was a dear friend of his, and they hunted together, they fished together. Uh, He's got a, 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 a state park named after him in, in uh, Wyoming. And one of the stories that Al uh, Simpson told, Senator Alan Simpson, who's retired now, told about the story they're driving along where they dedicated the park. It was at Kurt Gowdy National Park. And Kurt turned to me and said, Senator Simpson, you don't even have an outhouse named after you. And, <laughs> and, and, and that was the kind of thing that how much they loved Kurt and how much I did, too. They call him the cowboy, but, boy, he was a sophisticated dude who, and a wonderful wife and Jerry and stuff. And whenever we went to Boston, I had a chance to stay with them. And, boy, they treated me like royalty there. But he was just an outstanding broadcaster. I, I don't know if anybody will ever do all that he did, you know, in the out of a broadcasting booth for big events. And he did them all well. Tony Kubek has joined us on Sports Byline. He's being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in the broadcaster's side of it. And we'll continue talking about his outstanding career as we continue on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. 
or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tony Kubek has joined us here on Sports Byline. Earlier, you gave a lot of credit to a lot of other people, and I think that there's another person that I'd like to get you to talk about because when you're talking about television, you're not only talking about the words you hear but the sights that you see. And I know that you've been very supportive of another guy that you'd like to see in the Hall of Fame, and that is Harry Coyle, the NBC director, who kind of, in a sense, I think, defined the way we watched baseball can you talk a little bit about his influence in those days as far as the way we were watching the game? Harry did the first baseball telecast ever with one camera, a college game. And I think that in itself says a lot, and he was revolutionary. Other people have talked about the first replay. He did the first replay when he was doing some uh, for the DeMont Network. Uh, Harry, uh, I used to love to sit around aside from television. Harry Coyle was a World War II veteran. He proved B-17s and a lot of bombing runs and everything else. He didn't like to talk about it, but I did because I, I kind of like, I'm kind of a little bit of a Second World War buff. You know, I had three uncles and a lot. They're like my brothers and sisters. were all in the, during that war when I was very young and growing up, and we had the four stars in the window, which is a tribute to the people in the neighborhood and everybody else who had those stars for veterans. But Harry was just unbelievable. He had a way of doing telecasts that his cameramen respected him so. I guess an incident, uh, one of the most famous shots, in World Series or maybe baseball history, the Carlton Fisk home run up in Fenway against the Red Sox, where I can recall where uh, a week before that we had talked about trying to get a shot with Cincinnati especially because they had some like Morgan and some of the guys who liked to run and with that left field monster in Fenway Park. And we went out uh, behind that scoreboard there and Harry found a little hole there where they used to hang the, the numbers up, the innings and the outs and stuff by hand. And he said, I think we can put a camera. And he said, we might get some shots of guys sliding, breaking a double play. We might get some shots of a steal or a critical play or how a double play is made, or et cetera, et cetera. And he had a cameraman out there. He said, this is an important camera. Your, sight of, your line of sight isn't very good. Well, what happens is he's got the cameraman propped, not for that specific shot, but Harry had his cameraman geared to cover certain sectors of the field. So when he cut to those shots from the truck, people realize, and I know you do, Ron, that, you know, the director sitting out in that truck, he isn't there seeing the whole field. He's seeing, and especially at World Series time, they've got so many monitors and replay and slow-mo monitors. It got confused for me when I even went in the truck to just see what was going on. And, boy, as soon as he called that shot, that cameraman hit Pudge Fisk, you know, guiding that ball fair. And, and, you know, that's only one instance of a shot that Harry Coyle got that got a lot of publicity because, it's like he never missed an important thing. I mean, in baseball, is, you know, I worked in Canada for 12, 13 years with guys who did hockey, which is a very fast sport, but it's a back-and-forth sport. 
And even the guys who directed hockey or produced hockey up there that I worked with when I first went up there, they said, this sport is so much harder than anything because it's so spread out. And you've got two men on and a gapper, and guys are chasing the ball down. You've got to follow the ball and the base runners and the relay man and the cutoff man and everybody running around and stuff. They said, this is tough. Harry just never missed anything. It was just, I don't know what it was. He just had a, uh, that sixth sense, and he trained so many directors. Because you can hear about producer and nobody else, but the director is the most important guy, I think, in a baseball telecast anyway. And Harry, there was nobody like Harry. Plus, he was a great, lovable guy. You could go out and have a beer with him, and you'd have fun. And um, he, he passed away too soon, not too long after he moved to Iowa to be with his grandkids and, and uh, just a few years later. But he, he was a dear man and a great, great professional. I mean, nobody ever did it better. Tony, what was the influence, do you think, at the particular time that NBC's Game of the Week was on as far as the development of the sport? Because I remember I was a young man, and it was something that I always looked forward to, sitting down, watching an entire ball game. I know that it was, you know, what made it special was the fact it was the day to watch baseball in America, not like today where you can watch it any time of the day and any day of the week. But what do you think was the influence of the game and what you guys brought together collectively of the, with the NBC Game of the Week? Well, you know, there, there was an exclusivity to there. You know, the, uh, when the Game of the Week as it was on, it was basically almost the only game that could be televised on that Saturday afternoon, and NBC did 26 of them. And then, uh, of course, had the, when the playoffs started, the league championship did the, did the World Series, did every All-Star game. And uh, it was an exclusive contract, uh, contract that NBC had with baseball. Uh, and I think it meant something It was special. Now there are a lot of games on, a lot of local telecasts, and that's fine. Uh, a lot of cable, a lot of uh, uh, pay packages to get the game. I really think that when it first started, uh, uh, when NBC got that contract, Chet Simmons, who uh, started uh, was a sports director, and Carl Lindemann, who was really the president of the sports department, Chester did a lot more, and they hired a lot of good people. Scotty Connell was a guy that really wanted to know about every possible angle that he could show the viewers in that particular telecast, whether it was a camera in the left center field, whether it was a, a camera that, uh, that, 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 that showed a, a tough play at second base. And he was interested in the sound where they put microphones in the, in the first base bag when the guy clumped the bag to add a little bit of the ambience to it. And they tried to make it more of a personal telecast, not for themselves or not for the director, producer, or broadcasters, so that the fans sitting in the living room or sitting in a bar or wherever they were sitting watch it will feel like they were just part of the entire thing. And, and I think it, it became an, such an intimate, uh, not just medium, you know, which, uh, especially through baseball. Uh, I think you can, you can, you know, not to criticize what happens or, since then because I don't watch it that much, but you can get too much pizzazz into it, too many cameras. Harry Cole used to recoil. He used to say, I, you know, I can do a baseball telecast the best when I've got six cameras. And I don't have to worry about doing them all because these other ones are more, will they get a shot on occasion? Yeah, they might get a little bit better close-up sometimes, he said. But, but you get to, to jump it around so much that there doesn't seem to be continuity in the game. And I think that's one thing that Harry stressed. He taught his cameramen. He taught the other directors under him who were going out on the road and, 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 you know, and, and succeeded him. And it was like, hey, look, we're going into these people's living room, into the bar. We got to make them a part of it, and that's important for you, broadcasters, and everybody else. That they're right, right there with us, and I, it created it created that kind of atmosphere, I think. And sometimes, when there's a lot of yelling and shouting and cutting from this shot to that shot, and 
and over replaying and uh, over slow mowing and over too many statistics and you know I think that it becomes overbearing and it's not really getting to the core of what the baseball game is about about how there are these subtle nuances subtle movements with the count how a hitter might just change his stance or change his grip how a guy may take a different position or you can show into the dugout and show a manager might be relaying signs to the coaches. I think there's so much going on and Harry Coyle would capture all that stuff. And I think rather than constant talk, constant cutting from shot to shot, uh, I think you can destroy a, a baseball telecast because it's, it's a difficult thing to, for a producer and a director to do. Tony, one of the things that I know as a play-by-play man, there has always been those moments that you think back on and you're still laughing today to tears coming down your eyes because they were just too funny. I was working a football game in college with a new color guy, and it was a former player, and he had a great personality, and I said, this guy is really going to be good. We had had you know, talks over the weeks before the ball game, and when he got on and I cued him to the first uh, replay, he started talking and he just froze up on me. His mouth was moving and no words were coming out. <laughs> Good. And I said to everybody on the air on the television telecast, I said, for all you lip readers out there, <laughs> you know, you just have to think on your feet. Did you have any moments like that, moments that, as you think back, Tony Kubek still smiles and laughs a little bit about? Well, uh, Bob Costas reminded me of a few, and he called me uh, oh, a little over a week ago to congratulate me, and he said, I, uh, I've got this fantasy of putting together, together this uh, imaginary uh, videotape of some of the things you or I said over our telecast <laughs> that we laughed on camera and we hoped that people didn't catch or we could we broke up when we went into a commercial and I said Bob don't do that there there just maybe were too many of those <laughs> and and we did have some of those and uh, I don't know if I ever I, I mean you can get stumped sometimes you know and, and say what do I say now and, you know whether it's pregame or all of a sudden a broadcaster said Tony what do you think about that and your mind might go blank. And then I think it's the kind of, kind of the time where you, uh, uh, you bluff it, I guess. <laughs> I think we've all had to do that on the air sometimes when the, the things just didn't come. I don't know if I ever clammed up where I couldn't talk like your partner that day, but well, there were times that I'd say, boy, this, something's just not going right here today. And then you, you try and regroup, and sometimes it's not that easy to regroup. But there, were, there was more than one faux pas in the, the, the many years that I broadcast, and I probably can't count them all. One of the things that I love about baseball is that I think it lends itself to the dramatic moment, probably more than any other sport, because I think there's so much downtime, and then all of a sudden something very, very exciting will happen. You already alluded to the Carlton Fisk game-winning home run in game number six of the 1975 World Series, but were there other moments that just kind of jumped out at you as you were doing a broadcast? You know, it wasn't always a, a World Series. I'll remember a catch as much as I can, uh, a catch that Willie Mays made in Candlestick Park with the bad sun on a Saturday afternoon, the, the, the terrible wind. He was playing center field, and Bobby Bonds was in right field. And I still to this day do not know, and I talked to Willie about it. I said, Willie, he was coming over. It was a high fly ball in right center field, and Bonds was over standing in front of the fence, and Willie just kind of came over in case. And all of a sudden, Bonds just kind of, the sun got in his eyes, the wind caught the ball, he had his glove up, and Willie somehow knew that he lost the ball. We couldn't tell on as many replays. And Willie went right behind him, almost over his back, put his cleats into the fence in left center field, jumped up, well, it seemed like eight feet, and it might have been, 
and just pulled the ball out of the air with his glove and came down right behind Bobby Bonds. I remember talking to him afterwards, and I said, he said, you know, Tony, I don't know how, he said, but I just sensed, because he played in that park so much, and he knew the wind currents, he knew the bad sun, he knew the high sky. Where, you know, we played a World Series there in 62 in all day games, and we found out uh, you know, how treacherous that field could be. And he said, I don't know, Tony, I just knew that he was in trouble. Don't, don't ask me how. I remember that particular play, you know, and I'm saying, how? I, I remember a, a World Series at bat that was a mere single. And it was Bob Gibson against Al Kaline, two Hall of Famers. And you knew they were going to be when they were playing. And Gibson was throwing as hard as he ever did and that great slider. And Kaline kept choking up with no balls, two strike. He probably followed out five, found out five, six pitches. And then Al Kaline choked up maybe four or five inches on the bat. He knew how hard Gibby was thrown. And he had a little line drive single to center field. And Gibson stood with his on the mound, which he never did. You know how what a competitor he was. He put his glove and his bare hand on his hips. K-Line was running the first base. He kind of looked over to see at Gibson, and Gibson just gave him a little positive nod of the head. And it was, it's a, it was a little single, but I vividly recall those two guys and their reaction and the battle they had, and it was only a single. And there were much, you know, to me that was a dramatic moment. It seemed like a little thing, you know, a great catch by Willie or a, a, a single K-Line against Gibson. But there were a lot of other things, too. There were dramatic home runs. There were great plays. You know, World Series, Rozzy Smith was diving all over the place. Cardinals against the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, great catches, dramatic hits. You know, the, the call that uh, Vince Scully made, you know, on the Gibson home run. Uh, you know, I always thought, you know, I'll go to the hockey, Al Michaels, you know, if you believe in miracles. You know, you watch those things, and it's something you can't duplicate. I remember... Uh, we did uh, Henry Aaron's record-breaking home run when he broke loose home run. I'm saying, wow, that's, a, you know, that's unbelievable. First swing of the bat at home. I went to Cincinnati the first game they played there, and uh, the Braves, and, uh, and Henry on the first swing of the you know, they said Henry didn't, didn't have a flair for the dramatic because he did everything. So he ran fast, but he ran so easy. He threw well, but he threw so easy. He had a home run so easy. He was such a great all-around ball player. Average power, the five tools, and yet I saw the first swing of the bat on the road. It's a home run to tie the record. Then we go to Atlanta to follow him, and, uh, and first swing of the bat at home, he hits the home run to break the record. I'm saying, now, they say he doesn't have a flair for the dramatic. I, I could just see Ted Turner saying, Henry, why did you do this to me? Why didn't you prolong this for another week or two? We'd have, we'd have packed the house in. But those, that was a dramatic moment, too. Uh, but, but I think just seeing some of the great players play every day, and see what they could do, whether it was a Frank Robinson or a Clemente in the World Series, we played them, and then, and then when he, they played Baltimore in the World Series, and you know, home and, uh, I mean, there are just so many dramatic moments that you see, and um, sometimes you wish that you were the play-by-play guys. Uh, I often wonder, what would I have said if I had been on doing play-by-play? I don't think you can pre-plan those things. I think, uh, I think the great broadcaster, or the Gowdies, or the Scullies, or the... Al Michaels, when he was doing baseball, which I still think is his best sport, even though he's doing Monday Night Football. Costas, when the moment comes, something just pops out of their mind. I don't think it can be pre-programmed, and that's why they're great broadcasters. And, uh, and, I, and I, I was just fortunate to be around to hear some of those things and see a lot of those things. Tony, I want to congratulate you on your career. Thank you for the time that you've given us. And, again, uh, enjoy the honor you deserve it. Thank you, Tony. 
I appreciate the time, and uh, hi to all your fans out there. You have a great show. Thanks, Ronnie. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic, every home run, every hit, every inning, every play, from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar, whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.